This is Radio Influence. Podcasting redefined. Why, Crusher, it's good to see you. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 10-12-60 with your questions, comments, or smart-ass remarks. Welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Crushell here, the con man. And we're your weekly source for performance information. Questions, comments, smart remarks, we love them all. Get them to us. Crushperformance.com is the website. Follow us on Twitter, at Jeff Crush. And on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, search out Crush Performance. And we're just hooking you up with all the latest information to help you reach your potential. And listen, if you have a topic... Or a question, we answer every message we get. Let us know. We've dedicated segments, even entire episodes, to your ideas. Because if you're thinking it, there's probably a good number of people that are also thinking the same thing. And the cool thing about this is the fact that you guys get us thinking about things that we might not think about. As we try to get you thinking about things that you might not be thinking about. And today is no exception. Con man, I'm really excited about today's show. We are going to talk with crush favorite sports scientist, Dr. Joe Baker from York University. And today, I wanted to get into a number of really important topics when it comes to development. And it's that time of year. As everybody heads back to school, the fall sports are underway, playoffs are on with Major League Baseball, there's so much going on. The Olympics are around the corner, and we're going to be focusing a lot on the international sporting scene coming up because there's a lot of things to talk about there. There's no end to the discussion topics here. And when it comes down to development and athlete talent, which is sort of the overlying theme for today's show, These topics come to mind, and these are things that I wanted to talk to Dr. Baker about. I want to talk about talent ID. Listen, we're terrible at it. We are absolutely dismal. As much as we would like to think that we have this down, as much as we'd like to think that analytics and data are helping us determine who might have success and who might not have success, no. Not in any way, shape, or form. There are way too many variables involved in talent identification and predicting future talent. And the problem is, the way the landscape is going right now, we're looking at athletes at a younger and younger age because we're specializing early. We've got these year-round programs. We're drafting, signing, and getting athletes into elite programs earlier and earlier, which is almost forcing us, as athletes commit to these programs, to look for younger and younger and younger athletes to try to predict where they're going to wind up or to get them into our systems before they go to another system. There's many downsides to our talent ID processes and systems that we have out there. And I want to talk about that with Dr. Baker. We're terrible at it. And I think it's safe to say that it's having a negative impact on the developmental systems. We're going to talk about that. I also wanted to get into the idea of specialization. Now, if you're tired of hearing about this, Don't be, because there's still a lot to discuss here, and there's a lot of interesting things happening in the sporting world that's leading us away from specialization, and education's certainly going to be the key here. So we want to talk about that with Dr. Baker, and then I want to get to some of the new training systems and techniques and even jargon out there when it comes to athlete development. Here's what I can honestly tell you, though we continue to learn more and more about developing athletes and talent and skills, there's not a lot that's new. 
when it comes to the physical side of training. Faster, higher, stronger, rest and recovery, sleep is priority number one, nutrition, hydration number two, posture, range of motion, functional Robust, well-rounded athletes are number three. And then teach them how to move. Teach them how to move and then start the process of really, really developing and tapping into the talent pool. That's going to be the conversation today with Dr. Joe Baker, sports scientist from York University, coming up in the next segment. So, talent ID, talent development, it is at the crux, the very core of our sporting systems. And yet, I think somehow we've lost sight of what's really important. We have this peak by Friday sort of mentality where we want everybody to be so good so soon that I don't think we really take our athletes and our young developing people, for that matter, through the proper developmental steps because it's a long game. It is a long game, and we have to be patient. And sometimes elite talent shows itself very, very late in the game, very late in the game. Sometimes it shines early and peters out. Either way, if the early developers are treated the same as the late developers at the end of the day we're going to have more people participating and enjoying sport and we're also going to have way more high performance athletes and that's why i comfortably say even to this day we are destroying more talent collectively as a whole than we are creating in our sporting models there are so many factors involved things like Your upbringing, for example, the greatest influence on you in early life, for most of us anyway, is our parents, their personal interests, the type of foods they eat, um, how they talk to you, as reflected in the great work done by Carol Dweck and her mindset research. How we address and talk to our young people can totally change their approach to not just sport, but life in general. And how your parents talk to you as a youngster and as a young child is incredibly powerful, more powerful than I think we realize. Where you live, the neighborhood, is also a great influence, the access to facilities. If you grow up in Canada, you're probably thinking hockey as a young kid. If you grow up in Europe, there's professional volleyball, and soccer is probably a greater influence. If you grow up in Texas, you're thinking football out of the womb. No question about it, right? So your environment and where you grow up has a lot to do with it, and the size of your community. We've talked about this on the show before, the birthplace effect. We know that more high-performing talent comes out of smaller communities than the bigger cities, and there's a number of reasons for that, but it also reflects the power of environment. Your friends are probably the next biggest influence on you. What are their interests and, you know, the group you fall into. And that's going to change as you grow and develop. Which direction will you go? Which group of friends will you fall into as you mature, develop, and and develop new interests? And, of course, the community, as we mentioned, your teachers, the facilities that are available, the programs. There's so many variables that go into determining talent outcomes that our approach to it and our attempts to predict and identify athletes that will have future success, it's dismal. It's almost a moot point, and I do believe it's doing more damage than good. I mean, a couple weeks ago, I challenged the con man to a difficult task. We were looking back at the top five WHL Bantam draft selections from 1997 to 2008. The top five draft picks of each season were given there. And these are 15-year-old kids. I, I really dislike the Bantam draft. Somebody would have to call in or explain to me the value of this in a developing hockey player's life. 
And and I think it would have to be a very, very long, hard discussion because I just can't see any good that comes out of this. But we were using this as an example because the data is there. We've got some longitudinal research. And I was asking Connor, out of the top five picks from each of those years, 1997 to 2008, how many of those top five 15-year-olds actually played in the NHL? So the first question was, in 1997, of the top five WHL Bantam draft selections, draft pick selections, how many of those young players wound up playing in the NHL? Now, remember that in the area, uh, they are the top young talents as deemed by the WHL, the Western Hockey League. And of the top five in 1997, only one player played in the NHL, and that was Jarrett Stoll. And then we fast-forwarded, we looked at 1999, of the top five, how many of those players played in the NHL? Only one. Then we looked at 2001. We jumped ahead, and actually four of the five here played in the NHL, so that was a great year for young players and their futures. But then we went to 2005. None of them. None of the top five picks made it to the NHL. And guys, we see this in every sport. You know it. I know it. The draft picks that actually have success and go on to impact their uh, franchises and their organizations are very low. There's very few top talents who are drafted that go on to impact their organizations. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and I want to discuss that today. So today, we are going to talk talent ID, specialization, and training systems and developmental environments with sports scientist Joe Baker, Crush Favorite. Coming up right after this, everybody, stick around and get us your questions, comments, and smart remarks. Crushperformance.com, we love them all. We'll talk to you right after this. If you have any performance questions, comments, or smart remarks, text Crusher at 10-12-60 and follow him on Twitter at Jeff Crush. Now, here he is, the Crusher. And welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Crushell here, the con man. I want to thank you for hanging on over the break. If you want to get in touch with us, please do so. We answer every message we get, or if you have a topic that you would like us to address, we've dedicated segments, even entire episodes, to your ideas right to us. Crushperformance.com. Info at Crushperformance is the email. On Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, you can search Crush Performance. And follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Crush. I don't tweet a lot. I don't send out a lot of stuff. Um, I'm trying to get better on Instagram. It's a really, really uh, useful platform to share information because that's what it's all about. But I think when we do decide to tweet something, it's usually something of interest And something we believe that could help you on your way to reaching your potential. So uh, reach out to us and follow us if you can. All right. Well, let's get down to it. An important conversation today. If there's one thing that we need to get better at, it's identifying talent and trying to predict where that talent is going to wind up down the road. And we're dismal at it. There's no question about it. But I think a lot of it even more so has to do with the idea that we need to understand across the board the developmental process. Because as poor as we are in predicting future talent, whether we have a young, really exceptional talent on our hands, or whether we have somebody who just has a passion for sport and wants to chase down the dream, though they might not be showing any indication at all of high performance outcomes down the road, we need to provide the best opportunity possible for any scenario and I think the breakdown comes down not from our ability to predict 
talent, future talent. The fact that we try to do it is crazy because it just doesn't work. It's not that simple. It's just not. But I think it's our lack of understanding that connects. Okay, hey, here's where an athlete is at. Here's where a young talent is at. It doesn't have to be sports, by the way. And here's the developmental process that's going to help them, that particular athlete, reach their potential. We're missing the boat big time. And to get into this discussion, I wanted to reach out to one of the world's top minds in this area. I'm very happy to introduce once again, crush favorite, Dr. Joe Baker, sports scientist from York University. Dr. Baker, thanks for joining us today. And my pleasure. Well, I just got back um, from Brazil. I'm in the middle of a wicked summer world tour, it seems, when it comes to player development, athlete development. And I was actually really excited to get you on to talk about um, talent, talent ID, and the processes of, of development when it comes to athletics. Because this is an area, I think, that we still have a lot to learn. Um, of course, heading into the fall here, uh, all the professional drafts are done, but schools starting up and when it comes to recruiting and school and development uh, I think that when it comes to identifying talent Dr. Baker we still have a lot to learn because it's it's not even close to being exact science is it no it's not even close and I think the the part we don't realize is how new talent science is as a as a field of research right we're doing a big um, massive review of all the research that's come out in the last 30 years on talent and it's so um top heavy like the the, the amount of work that we're putting into uh, talent research right now is just starting to uh, to peak and you go back 20 years and there's maybe two three studies of uh, research on talent and so this idea that there's this massive evidence base like coaches and scouts and um, and parents have for making decisions about whether their kid has talent or not is complete falsehood. There's just no evidence out there. So you couldn't make an evidence-based decision if you wanted to. It's really interesting. You know, one of my fascinations has been, where does this talent come from? I've been lucky enough to work in a number of professional sports and, of course, with Olympic athletes, and I've been around some of the best minds in the world. And it just fascinates me to see um, players who would be deemed um, – probably early in their sporting careers uh, to have no hope of a future in sport. And then others who seem to be the young sort of phenoms in their age groups, especially through the mid-teen years, sort of disappear to the wayside. And, and when you get into the research, a lot of the research on talent comes from music, chess, cooking. There's a wide, wide berth of, of information out there. But it just, when I get into the research and look, look at what we know about talent, I am just so amazed how far off we really are. I've seen it with my own eyes, these young athletes who are deemed to have no future in sport go on not only to be successful but impact sport. And I guess maybe that just reflects how little we truly know about the process of development or maybe more about identifying talent at a certain point in time. Well, I think it's a bit of both, right? Like the the you know the the most interesting thing about that whole thing is it's probably the person telling that athlete, you know what, you don't have what it takes. That is a really important um, you know stimulus for increased work on their part, or you know I'm going to show them that kind of stuff. You know the whole Michael Jordan getting cut from his high school basketball team right. myth, which um, you know when you look at it one way, it's well yeah, I'm going to show you. And so I put in more hard work and it's the hard work that eventually leads to them being this amazing force. The flip side of that is just how few uh, people that look like they're prodigies when they're young and look like they're great bets for talent actually don't end up being anything. And so, you know, I think it speaks to the, 
complexity of this whole process. And, and, you know, part of that is the identification and the selection, but the more important part is the nurturing of that process all the way along. And the, the idea that we know how to nurture that process, well, I think is another falsehood about athlete development. Yeah, we're talking with Dr. Joe Baker, sports scientist from York University. Uh, Dr. Baker, it's interesting. Um, I've, I've had a chance to sort of um, follow very closely some of the young talents being drafted and then into their, into their professional careers. And it takes time. And I think this is one of the things that, that we've sort of lost track of. And it, as we look into maybe the pro- professional world, um, we're seeing the scouts and the talent uh, recruiters trying to look younger and younger, trying to identify it earlier. And the problem with that is that I'm seeing anyway, is the earlier we look at this talent, the more inaccurate our ability to predict their futures are. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the data for that is pretty clear. And even if we wait until, you know, the, the, the age at the professional drafts, the draft selections are, are massively inaccurate. And so, you know, start backing that up and say, well, instead of 19, we're going to look at 15 or 13. Well, forget it. You, you'd have to show me some pretty compelling evidence for me to believe that that, uh, those selections are accurate because the evidence we have is that you know, you're throwing darts at a dartboard in the dark. Ah, I like the analogy, and I think it's pretty accurate as well. One of the things we say to our young athletes, um, regardless of what their aspirations are in sport, and, and even if they're not involved in sport when it comes to their academics or their music or whatever the, the young talents are, are pursuing, um, we say we don't really know. And this is something I'm really trying to uh, uh, spread inside of our, our world anyway, uh, I say to every athlete and their parents, we don't know how good you can become until you go through the process. And then it gets me thinking, what exactly does a good process look like? Because we see incredible talents coming from all different areas, all different back- backgrounds, and certainly incredibly diverse environments. Yeah, and I think that's part of the whole um, issue that we continue to struggle with even after 150 years is this idea that it's nature or nurture when, in fact, it's a combination of both. Uh, You don't know if you have the right genetic raw materials until you put in those thousands of hours of practice. And so the idea that you split it into, well, you know, it's all about hard work or it's all about having the right genetics. No, it's a combination of both. And like you said, until you put in those hours of training, especially for sports like baseball or soccer or, or football, where the, the environment's dynamic, the requirements for performance and success are, are uh, variable and, and changing all the time. You know, if we're talking about a sport like rowing, where it's all about moving fast in a straight line and, and the physics of lever length and you know, those kind of sports, yeah, I could buy the argument that we just need a, a person with long levers and so, you know, predict feet hike velocity of, of nine-year-olds and you'd have a pretty decent talent selection system. When you start to add those levels of complexity to the sports that you're talking about, then very quickly those models of, you know, just being able to look at somebody and know that they've got it or they don't, those models fall out the window. I guess that takes us back to the very, very important question of specialization. And, of course, uh, you and I have talked about that conversation on this show before, but um, the conversation isn't going away. As much as we know about the developmental process, we still see this, this tendency or this urge to specialize early in most sports and get your young, young athletes specialized so they can have an, a, a sort of an advantage uh, going into their sport. When we know 
for the most part, and, and maybe on a larger scale, it, it actually probably restricts top-end development quite a bit. That selection age, those early ages in sport, is such an important time, one, to build that diversity in the sport experience. We know that. But also from a psychological side, it gives an athlete sort of an ability to choose which sport maybe they're suited for from a, from a psychological standpoint. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. And, you know, for me, the the positive thing in that whole specialization debate is just how clear the message from uh, researchers and policymakers has become, right? The um, the Canadian Sport for Life 3.0 model came out a couple weeks ago, and it's really clear that, you know, the best thing that we can do for young kids is have them practice and, and participate in a range of different sports, delay selection as long as possible, all that great stuff. The problem is, when you have a sports system where the sports work in isolation of each other and where the early development is driven by, you know, for lack of a better word, a capitalist agenda, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it's all about money-making of the person driving the program, then, well, selection um, is, the, is, the, um, is the means to the end, right? Having an athlete in your program that you actively say, well, don't participate in my program in the summer, go and participate in someone else. Well, that doesn't put money in your pocket. And so when we have programs that are driven by that kind of entrepreneurship, instead of what's the best decision for the athlete, it doesn't matter how much great research we have and how clear our policies are. There's still going to be a massive problem with kids over specializing. Yeah, and I guess maybe that's where we have to empower parents and athletes to make really, really informed choices. And that's why I think uh, discussions like this are so important. We're talking with Dr. Joe Baker, sports scientist from New York University, uh, because, uh, Dr. Baker, this is a very, very important uh, discussion. And again, to get elite athletes out of a system uh, is, is, is fun and it's great and, and it's, it's important for the developmental process, reflecting on the developmental process. But our number one goal is to keep people involved in sport. And if they're dropping out at incredible rates at the age of 12, 13, and 14, I think we're really, really missing maybe one of the larger, most important goals, and that's making sure people are participating. Yeah, I think, you know, if we were to, um, and I challenge coaches when I do uh, workshops on talent ID with them, like how would you redesign your athlete development program if you if you assumed that you were terrible at, at identifying and selecting talent instead of assuming that you're good, because I think most coaches assume that they're good at this process and all of our evidence is that they're not good and that they make selections at, at, wrong, at the wrong time without uh, the right evidence. And, um, and so if you were to design a program where your assumption was that you're terrible at this outcome instead of good at it, how would you design that program? And you design a program where everybody was participating for much longer than they do now. You'd kind of hedge your bets on athletes and, and not exclude them from the program because we know that exclusion has developmental consequences and, and it would be a more efficient program. And so, you know, part of that is the specialization um, part of it, but another part of it is just Hey, if we if our goal was keeping people involved in the programs for as long as possible, we would design a different program. Mm. And um, I, when you can kind of see the light bulb go on in coaches' minds when when they first we do a whole thing on how little evidence we have that we can provide them to support their decisions, and then we give them this, you know, how would you redesign the program? And you see the light bulbs go on, and it's 
you know you've changed that coach for the the way they interact with young athletes from that point forward. Yeah, no question. I think the great spinoff of a, a culture like that would be um, more high-performance athletes and more athletes uh, probably pursuing sport to higher levels because they're, they're uh, um, enjoying their their the process and I, I think we see this one of the interesting things i've seen here in the last couple of years was some of the data coming out of the ncaa looking at athletes who um sign pro or go pro out of high school as opposed to going through a college career first and so much more success at the higher levels after going through a college career which just seems like common sense doesn't it i mean uh to have that time away from home a little more independent as a as a university or college student uh but having that time to uh i guess develop a little longer uh kind of makes some sense yet we rush our young people into these programs uh much too early i think well and it's interesting because there's some evidence coming out of the US that and I'm sure it's the same thing in Canada, that the players, um, or not necessarily the players, but the kids entering the university and college system are, are developmentally delayed from where a generation uh, ago they were. And, you know, sometimes it's one or two years delayed in terms of their de- social development because of social media and too much time on screens and too little social engagement and all these kinds of things in the way that society is changing. Hmm. And you know that this is going to have an effect on athletes as well, because, you know, with the over um, involvement of parents, um, that they're not providing their athlete with these opportunities for personal growth and independence. And this is going to have uh, consequences and implications for their development as um, high performance athletes in the future. Yeah, interesting. That is a fascinating stat, uh, and I've never really considered this before because um, um, it's so, so true. Uh, our environments are changing. The way our kids are growing up are changing, and it's literally, as you mentioned, delaying the developmental process. Pretty fascinating, pretty powerful. Yeah, really, really cool. And, you know, just to take a step back uh, while we were talking about the specialization part, like for me, I think, if I was a if I was a coach, I would be looking for a sport that I could partner with, so that I could build a program that had diversification as the um, as the, uh, the the central tenet. Right? That that okay, we're gonna we're gonna develop great basketball players, and part of developing a great basketball player is you're gonna play soccer in the summer, mm-hmm. um, and we're gonna link with the soccer team, and these are our basketball related outcomes that we're gonna develop through soccer participation and. You know, build it from that sense up. That's for me. That's how you meet both the goals of, you know, um, diversification and and fundamental movement skill development, all that kind of stuff. But you still maintain that that entrepreneurship and you keep people in your program. I think that's how you achieve both ends. And it's amazing that nobody really that I've seen in North America has started capitalizing on that yet. Oh, you are preaching to the choir here, Dr. Baker. And this is maybe the golden gem of this conversation to point. Um, You mentioned how sort of the capitalist approach to youth development has really changed the landscape. You know, people are apprehensive about letting kids go even play other sports. I've seen it. My young nephew uh, was a great young soccer player, part of a a pretty elite club because he loved the game. Uh, 
Uh, but he also wanted to ski in the wintertime. And it got to the point where the coaches at the uh, soccer club said, no, if you choose to ski, you can no longer be part of this club. And I'm going, are you kidding me? He was 10 years old, Dr. Baker. And I'm going, are you kidding me? It's a crime, I feel. I feel it's a true crime. Um, so uh, uh, w- when you talk about when you talk about combining those two, the maybe the the monetary gains that are associated with development now with proper development, you're right, it's so there. We see all these school academies and these private academies that are uh, focused on a sport. What an opportunity to expose athletes to a diverse yearly annual plan. I love this idea, and I think you're right. We need to see way, way more of this. Yeah, like it seems that if you wanted a program that you could build around the evidence and convince parents, which would probably be your biggest challenge, would be convincing parents. Right. But I actually don't think it would be that difficult because of the mountains of evidence that we have that specialization is not just a bad thing for your your kid if they're going to be a, you know somebody who loves sports for the rest of their life. But it's actually a bad thing even if you want your kid to be an elite performer. It's you know, it's a lose-lose on both of those outcomes. Yeah, there is no question. That is a lose-lose on both accounts. And our number one objective here is to keep people involved in sport. And if they decide to go down that route of high performance, well, I think the outcome here is going to be more athletes that want to do that. One, because they're enjoying sport but then also the impacts into society and health in general is incredible. Well, listen, we have to cut out for a quick break, everybody. When we come back, Dr. Baker, I'd like to discuss with you setting up those environments where, one, athletes and people in general can develop and love sports and have success, but also what can we learn from these successful organizations and how can we implement that? That's coming up right after this on Crush Performance. Stick around. You're listening to Crush Performance, your weekly source for sport performance and athletic development information. Get the Crush blogs, podcasts, and performance links at crushperformance.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Jeff Crushell, the con man, and thanks for sticking around over the break uh, as we're well into a very in-depth conversation on talent ID, performance environments, and training systems that work in the real world. Because there's a lot of theory out there. There's a lot of philosophy out there. But what is practical in the trenches? And that is one of the big things that we really have to, under- to understand in our developmental models. Dr. Baker, thanks for sticking around. Uh, fantastic conversation so far. You know, the idea of specialization, individualization, and you know, really addressing the development of our athletes long term. We do need to develop these environments that are going to allow this. And one of the things that's always fascinated me is, you know, if we look to professional sports, we often say if you want to, you know, kind of learn what to do, look to the pros, sometimes for what not to do as well, but certainly for what to do because they have the resources and they're on the cutting edge there. But I really have been interested over the last few years of digging into and looking at organizations that have continued success, whether it's sport, business, uh, academics, you know, some of the the great institutions out there. Um, there's similar themes when it comes to organizational success, and it has a lot to do with how that environment is structured to help the people in that environment achieve their potential. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And and I have a one of my PhD students who's looking at this from the NHL right now just to try to understand the 
almost a franchise approach to talent development. You know, we look at these leagues as, as if they're a, um, just one whole thing, but there's actually pockets of teams that are actually doing a pretty decent job at identifying talent. And so, you know, the Oakland athletics are um, a great example in baseball. The Astros are a great example in baseball, but what is it about them that's different from the rest of these teams? They all have access to massive pots of money. They all have, a vision where identification and scouting is critical, but what's the key difference? Are they, is it a different approach? Is it a different philosophy? Are they giving them more time to develop in the farm system before they call them up? Like what's the, what's actually different between teams that are successful and not successful. And, you know, it could be fluky. It could be, you know, there's always going to be an outlier in any uh, dynamic prediction system, but you know, is there something that we could put our finger on and say, well, Hey, you know, we need to explore this more. Yeah, and I think that would be a fascinating experiment for sure, and I think that's something that hopefully we'll see here over the next little while because I do believe uh, that's going to be one of the key elements to future success in sport for sure. And I think, you know, when it comes to human talent development – Sport is just one area. We could look at music, academics. You know, we talk about uh, the great chefs or the great chess players. I think that the the process of talent development would be fairly consistent regardless of the arena of performance. Do you agree with that, Dr. Baker? I think to a certain extent there's always going to be, uh, you know, except for those really simple tasks like uh, we were talking about earlier, um, rowing I think is an example of, right. you know, where it's probably as simple as it gets in terms of, um, just making sure you got really long levers. There's no, you know, the potential for VO2 max development is there. You know, 100 meter sprinting might be another example of, you know, if we know what the anthropometric uh, profile of a great 100 meter sprinter, so a Usain Bolt, for example, then we just look for people who are going to recreate that. Um, for so there are some tasks where I think it it, it actually is relatively simple compared to some of the other other ones, but the other ones are so innately complex that um, it, it, the, the focus on the process needs to be the thing. Yeah. And what does that process look like? In all of your research, have you, I mean, there's different approaches to development. And I do like the, the, the idea of those simple tasks as opposed to maybe there's more complicated tasks. And I think even in the world of sport, you could probably break that down position by position inside of a team or an organization, but individual sports as opposed to team sports, very, very different animals and probably different approaches too when you get down to it. So there's lots of different uh, um, uh, scenarios out there where athletes will develop or focus their efforts, but that process has to be fairly accurate. You know, we talked uh, before about the dynamic systems and all these different approaches to development. Is there one that you've seen has been fairly successful compared to others or is it more of a, um, a jigsaw puzzle, piece by piece, putting it together as the process develops? Well, for me, it's more of a jigsaw analogy, but um, the thing that makes it even more complex is it's not the same jigsaw for every person. Right. The um, the puzzle pieces are, are changing, and, and the size of the puzzle is different. Um, so for me, it's, you know, if we come back to this dynamic systems approach, um, what you what you quickly get to is the variables are um, so innate and, and dynamic over time that as a coach and as a you know administrator of a sport program, our job really should be to just not mess things up and keep people in the program long enough to figure out whether they've got what it takes to be an athlete, rather than the approach that we have now, which is we've got to choose those people. 
um, you know, if, if we recognize, hey, terrible at those decisions in the first place and emphasize this idea that this is an innately, uh, inherently complex, dynamic process that's going to change over time based on what you do today and what you do next week and um, those outcomes are important, then very quickly we get to the point where the goal of every interaction we have with the athlete is not to mess things up. Oh, such great stuff. Such great stuff. A very, very important conversation here, Dr. Baker. If you were to... um if you were to look into the crystal globe and have a little control over the future of sport, I think I know what you're going to say here because we kind of, I think, broached this topic already. Um, sort of as a last, as a last statement here, um, what would you wish for sport and sport development if you were to sort of call the shots here or steer it in the right direction? Well, I think for me the biggest thing is um, is is to forget about talent selection and identification to the point at which that's possible in your sport and really focus on um, quality engagement with the athletes that are in your program. Because if you do that, not only are you going to have um, a better chance of developing that person who needs that time and, and, you know, time on task and practice and deliberate practice and all that kind of stuff, but you're also going to fill the stands and, and the viewership for your sport with people who love what they do, even if they're not elite athletes. You haven't, you haven't created a situation where they're going to disengage from your sport uh, because you've deselected them or because you've, you've been too intense or you've emphasized winning when they, they wanted you to focus on participation. So, you know, if we were to create a system where the outcome was participation at the highest quality that we can do with every person in our program, we would, uh, we would have a different kind of program and we'd probably have less emphasis on specialization, less emphasis on identification and selection at early phases of development, which we know is problematic and we would probably end up with a system that's more efficient and more effective than the one that we have now. Ah, great stuff. If only, if only we were, uh, <laughs> if only it were that easy. Hopefully, we're moving in that direction, though. Though I think, I think we're we're kind of steering away. I think it's going to come around. I think it has to because um, uh, necessity is going to require this at some point. Would that be safe well, to say? Well, I think the you know for me the promising thing was we were part of. Um, um, uh, an activity at the the Royal Society in the UK with the rugby union guys there, and um, one of the things that we came up with as uh, scientists and and uh, coaches was that we need to delay selection in rugby until 15. And then part of the discussion was how that probably is never going to happen because if you know if rugby doesn't choose players until 15, then the best players are going to get snapped up by cricket or or soccer or whatever, and and so we had this discussion of this is this is without question the way we need to go, and then these are the problems with that approach. And then they went and did it. They said we're not going to select until 15, and it's worked. It's uh, it's been a great uh, change for that system. And so I think we need to be focusing not on why we can't do things, but power and the benefit if we if we try these things because it's too easy to say, well, yeah, no, we that would never work. It is. It is for sure. And that's why, again, conversations like this are so, so important. Dr. Baker, thank you so much for this uh, great conversation. We'll look forward to following up on this and, and, uh, and touching base with you here in September and October. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, and there you have it, everybody. Fantastic conversation. Sports scientist Joe Baker from York University. 
just a fabulous perspective on the development of athletes and the development of talent for that matter because the conversation here goes well beyond sport. Sport just happens to be our platform and our area of focus. But there's a lot to take away here. Going back to the idea of specialization, I'm not sure if you're sick and tired of hearing about it, but we still need to talk about it. Because it's a real hard pill for some people to swallow. The fact that early specialization just does not work. And it's a very, very rare occasion where we've seen athletes who specialize early make it to the top of the game. There's way more incidents where they don't have continued success than there are Tiger Woods, Williams Sisters, Roger Federer, Andre Agassi type of type of situations where athletes who have passion and love the sport actually have continued success. There are so many variables involved here. Why do some athletes succeed? And why do some athletes fall to the wayside and potentially even leave sport early, which is what we're seeing at record-breaking rates right now, which is alarming. That being said, there's a lot of options out there for kids. And I think the influence of social media is also playing a role here but on on that coin sport is really dominated and and really doing a good job of promoting through social media so um there's a lot of variables that are contributing to one the success of athletes and why athletes might fall to the wayside And there's so many things that are unpredictable. But getting back to the conversation about talent ID, which is, I think, one of the key components of this conversation in terms of specialization, environment, and even when we talk about the dynamic systems approach for development, all these things are sort of rolled into one. But one thing that kind of gets overlooked is this idea of talent ID and how dismal, terrible we are at identifying talent. And the younger the athletes are, the worse we are in predicting future success. The problem with the entire system right now, however, is we're developing a model that is forcing us to look younger and younger and younger for potential. And that's spurring on this entire system of maybe early specialization and added pressure and year-round training on these athletes that is leading to burnout, injuries, and the dropout rates, all contributing factors. But understanding the idea of talent ID and when it should actually happen might be as important a conversation as specialization and early specialization. If we took away, what would happen in a world where we took away talent ID before a certain age? And let's say that age might be 17. Because I think 16 is still too young for a lot of kids. We might have an idea, a better idea at 16 of those more advanced athletes or talents who might have success by those sort of mid to late teen years, but it really doesn't come to fruition until you're in your late teens, early 20s. There's very, very few sports where we're seeing undeniable signs and consistent signs of future success in the mid-teens, early teens. But if we look at the Bantam draft, which you all know I do not like, even the international signing date for Major League Baseball, I don't like 16 years of age, too young too young to take these young talents away from their home base and throw them into the world of professional developmental sports. It takes a very special organization and a pretty special kid 
to survive those circumstances and really prosper though. Like I'm talking about prosper. A lot of kids can survive and go there and be all right. But are we tapping into their potential? If we took away talent ID, especially early talent ID, man, I think that would change the landscape. We might see more athletes tend towards playing multiple sports rather than worrying about being identified as a prospect early. We might have more families relaxing a little bit and not putting so much pressure on themselves and their young athletes. Organizations as well. We know a lot of organizations build their reputations on developing either college or professional talents. It's a big draw for a lot of developmental organizations to say, hey, our alumni, we have this many alumni drafted to Division I schools or this many alumni are now playing professional sport. So that is a draw, but it's also changing the way we truly approach our young athletes. And so it comes back to this big question that I've been posing here for the last couple of years. Are we destroying more talent than we're creating, even with the greatest of intentions? And I think today's conversation with Dr. Baker is shining some light on these very issues. Food for thought, if nothing else. But from the practical side, there's some really valuable things here. I mean, look at the rugby union Dr. Baker mentioned. The fact that they have taken the bold step not to identify and bring young athletes into the fold full-time into rugby is a risky business because as he mentioned and logic would suggest that if these athletes aren't committed to rugby year-round, they may lose some of those players to other sports. That is great for sport. And at the end of the day, the rugby players that wind up gravitating and staying in rugby are probably the ones that truly love it or truly have a skill set that allows them to play at a high level. So I'm really happy to hear that that's going on. And I'm also very happy to hear that the new Canada Sport for Life, the 3.0 version, is strongly suggesting the downsides of specialization just from a general standpoint. And these are all messages that we need to continue to talk about. And that's why today's conversation was so, so important. Okay, well, I want to give Dr. Baker one more shout out, one more big thank you for coming on the show today. A fantastic conversation. Hey, please share this with your fellow coaches, fellow parents, fellow teammates, administrators. This is a conversation that we need to be having across the board in sport. And it doesn't matter which borders you guys live in. Uh, everywhere around the world is facing the same issues And I can attest to that. I've seen it as I uh, have been traveling around helping athletes and organizations put together performance programs. So spread the good word. Share the show. That's what it's all about. Okay, I want to thank you guys for tuning in as well. Uh, Coming up in the next few weeks, we've got a really great lineup here on Crush Performance. We are going to dive into performance nutrition. It's number two on our scale of priorities, sleep, rest, and recovery being number one. But we're going to talk sport nutrition with the performance nutritionist for the Oakland Raiders coming up. NFL season, of course, right underway. Very timely. Uh, We'll talk about football nutrition. We're certainly going to talk about hydration. But we're also going to talk about planning. Because if you're going to have success in anything, you need a plan. And when you break down the big picture, there's all these components that need to be addressed. And sometimes you need sub plans for every one of these. Certainly in athletics, that's the case. So I want to start laying out what does a good nutrition program look like? Let's talk to the pros. That's coming up in the next few weeks. We're going to address the influence of data and analytics on sport across the board. And we're going to get to some of the crush questions that have been piling up here over the last little while and on that note please get to us if you have questions comments or smart remarks or if you have a topic 
or an idea you'd like us to investigate, we may dedicate a segment or an entire episode to your idea. So get to us, crushperformance.com. All right, that'll do it for this week, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time on Crush Performance. I'm Jerry Petuck, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist. So thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>